For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's pray. Father, these are powerful words. Uh, words that apply to every one of us. And we would ask that you would grant us clarity in understanding them. And that you'd be with Tom, that he can powerfully proclaim these things. And we look to you and your spirit to work in our hearts and lives as this word is applied to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, guys. I'm going to try to jumpstart our thinking a little bit this morning by uh, posing a couple of questions. The first question is, how many of you think it's a good thing when Christians actually act like Christ? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, I hope your answer is still yes. Some people are just shy and don't want to raise their hands. The second question that I have is, generally speaking, would you say that you personally do a good job on God's behalf of nudging your fellow Christians to act like Christ? I don't see as many hands. Yeah, I see a, I see a thumbs down back there. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'd put myself in that category, Barbara. Is it possible that the failure that the, that occurs in the church and in the local body when it comes to us really moving each other toward Christ is not just a failure of our performance of our of our own walk with Christ but it's a failure of strategy is it possible that we that we're going about it in a way that isn't the same as the way God intends and that's what that's what I really want to that's the question I want to set before you this morning is are we on the same page as God. I'm, uh, as I was in this passage, I was thinking back on some of the recent conversations, in fact, conversations that have been going on for a long time that, I, that I've had with other believers in this body about that very question, how we're doing as a church, how we're doing as Christians. And, uh, and I realized that there's, a, there's kind of a pattern to those conversations. And uh, for instance, what you'll find is when it comes to, to making the most of our time and serving the Lord and, and advancing the kingdom of God, the guy who loves to watch a lot of football, will, will, he will quickly point out the evil excesses of spending a lot of, times, uh, a lot of time binge-watching Netflix. And, and the guy who likes to binge-watch Netflix will talk about these Christians that are wasting their lives away watching back-to-back football games. And, and we're really, really good at spotting the flaw and the problem and what we would call the sin, at least a sin of omission in the life of that other believer. 
Meanwhile, everybody in the conversation has neighbors within two or three doors of their house who have never heard a word of the gospel from them, even though they lived next to them for 10 or 15 years. So maybe the problem is more pervasive than Netflix or football. I'm not saying those aren't issues to be considered. But more to the point, maybe the solution isn't for us to put one another under our own fogged-up microscopes the way we are prone to do. Maybe there's another approach that God would have us take. The passage that we're looking at this morning is all about the church getting with God's program. It's about us living as a body of Christ, as the body of Christ in such a manner that, that Christ shines and He is glorified in the world. And this passage is very illuminating when we're really paying attention to it. In verse 14, Paul actually kind of creates a composite verse that's drawn from a bunch of different passages in the Old Testament that talk about God's people stepping into the light, waking up, rising from the dead, and coming into the light. The verse says, For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. One of the most prominent verses that uh, that you'll find, or passages that you'll find, we were just a couple of chapters away from it this morning, Gordon, uh, in the worship, is... Uh, Isaiah 60, and I'm going to read the first three verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness all the peoples. But Yahweh will rise upon you and His glory will appear upon you and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Those, that's the kind of passage that Paul had in mind when he, when he, he wrote, um, no doubt, when he wrote Ephesians 5 verse 14. Now that, uh, that verse begins with the words, for this reason. And so he's pointing backward to what he just got through saying earlier in this passage about, about us, how we used to be darkness, but now we are light in the Lord and, and commands us to walk, therefore, in the light. Verse 14 kind of wraps up the theme of light and darkness, and it introduces another theme. And that that other theme I'll call snap out of it. Because the theme that he's introducing here is it's time to wake up and live as light in the world. Now, it's rather curious that he would that he would set a verse like this in front of Christians. He's made it very clear throughout the epistle. He's writing to the saints at Ephesus, the saints in Asia Minor, the believers, the redeemed. All of the promises in the first three chapters are to the redeemed of God. But now he says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Arise from the dead? He said in Ephesians 2 that we used to be dead, but now we're alive. And, and he went further than that. He said that when 
God saved us. He raised us up with Christ and seated him in the heavenly place, seated us in the heavenly places with him for all eternity. So why does he say, rise up, awake sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you? Well, I don't think this is any different than what he did already and what he's done repeatedly. He said, you have put on Christ, now put on Christ. He said in chapter 5, verse 8, you were formerly darkness, now you are light. Walk, live daily as children of light. So he's he's saying, you have been raised up, now rise up. You have been brought out out of the darkness. Awaken and stand in the light. And and what happens? What did he just say in verse 13 of chapter 5? What happens when when the brilliant, marvelous light of Jesus Christ is shown upon something that was in the darkness? Well, if that something doesn't flee from the light, what happens to it is it becomes light. It becomes light. That's the power of the light. And so... He says, awake sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And what happens when that happens? We shine. We shine in the world on God's behalf. The rest of this passage really keys off of, of what I believe is the foundational command in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. So the the essential command is walk wisely, not foolishly. And we need to bear in mind what he says about that walk right there in verse 15, and that is wise living is careful. See, if you're going to walk wisely, that means you don't get to walk in default settings mode. Because the habit of our flesh, of where we came from, who we used to be, is very, it's very ingrained. And even when that man is, that old man has been declared dead, we have this tendency to try to revive him and, and to, to live the way we used to live. And this whole, over and over in this epistle, Paul says, don't do that. Don't walk any longer as the Gentiles walk. Put off the old man and put on the new. And the only way, guys, the only way that happens is if we are intentional. I know that's, that's an overused word these days, but it's a really good word. If we are intentional, if we're purposeful, if we wake up in the morning with our mission in mind, with our purpose for being here in mind, and we carry that purpose with us to shine in this world on Christ's behalf until we lay our heads down on the pillow at night, we are, to, we are to walk wisely, and that means that we walk carefully. In verse 16, he tells us that wise living makes excellent use of time. And this is a very big deal in Paul's letters. In fact, it's a big deal throughout the New Testament. And this is where I think... Uh, this is kind of where I was at the in the introduction. This is where I think we tend to get off the rails some. Um, much of our conversation about redeeming time, and, and let me back up. The word here is redeem the time. Buy back the time for God. That's, that's the idea. Buy back your time for God. And when we are talking with each other about 
Christians redeeming the time, I think what we end up doing is wasting the time in those conversations a lot, of, uh, very often. We waste the words and we waste the time. And here's why I think that. It is not accidental that in this passage there's very little space given to negative commands. In other words, prohibitions. In fact, there's really only one, when it comes to actual behaviors, there's just one prohibition here, and that is be not drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, but there are perhaps a couple of reasons why he doesn't go to the to a list of negatives here. One is that he's already talked about them some, right? In chapter 4, he said that not to walk as the Gentiles walk, they have become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Sensuality, impurity, greediness. In chapter 5, he said there's some things that are not fitting for saints. And what were they? Immorality, impurity, greed. Same essential list, right? And there are other passages that talk about redeeming the time, and they do have some negatives in them. But here's what I want you to see is what kind of negatives they are, what kind of prohibitions they are, what are the behaviors that are being that, that we're being told we must put ourselves as far away from as possible. We've already seen immorality, impurity, greed. Go to uh, Romans 13 for a minute. And this is very definitely a passage that has the common theme with this passage about making the most of time. It's a beautiful uh, image, in, uh, powerful image in Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. It says, And this do, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Sound familiar? For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Uh, you see the image he's, he's doing is he's saying that the, the whole of our Christian life is like the last hours of darkness before the day comes. And he's saying that's all you've got left to shine the light of Christ in the darkness. After that, the darkness is banished. Okay, So that's that's it. It's, it's that sense of great time urgency. And then he says, he says, let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness. The very same language that he used earlier in chapter 5 of Ephesians. Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Now look at the negatives. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, flip over to 1 Peter 4. It's not just Paul. And in uh, 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4 verse 3, he says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles and look at the negatives. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now let me ask you, is there anything in those lists that we just saw that isn't clearly identified as sin in both Testaments of the Bible? These are the big ones, guys. These are big 
prominent, blatant sins against God. And when he says redeem the time, that's where he goes on the negative side. But what he doesn't talk about is all those lesser sins, which are many. All the sins that involve kind of frivolously frittering away our time on stuff that really doesn't count. You think that they didn't do any of that back then? I I think every generation of mankind has had ways to fritter away time. I hope you're, you're with me on this because I think there is a reason that none of these passages about redeeming time give a, try to give us sort of a comprehensive list of the, the do-not-dos, right? And here's why I think that's the case. It's because I think if we make a worthy walk all about emptying the house, we're just making room for more demons. I think we have to fill the house And I think that's where these passages very consistently put their focus. It's like, okay, these big things, we're all agreed, don't do that stuff. But instead of focusing on all the little things that we also shouldn't do, let's move from that over to what actually solves the problem. What actually solves the problem. You with me? Okay. This is important. And so, where does he go? (laughs) Well, in passage after passage, he talks about putting on Christ. And that's that's what he's talking about here. And the rest of this passage, apart from that, the prohibition not to be foolish and not to be drunk with wine, all the rest of this, this passage, as we're about to see, are beautiful positives. Things that we are to do in order to walk wisely before God. And it's a great assignment. Verse 17, wise living understands God's will. Paul says, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, do you think that means that God has made His will for how we live hard to figure out? You think that's what he means? No, guys, God's will for how his people are to live is plastered all over this book. And it's right here in this chapter. And it's right here in this passage. So the problem, the issue that he's raising is not that God has, you know, that God said, okay, I saved you and I want you to do the things that please me. Now have fun figuring out what they are. That's not the way God does things. He's been crystal clear. Uh, and and I've, I've said this to many people, the things that, and many have said it to me, the things that actually transform our lives are, are dirt simple. It's the things that theologians wrangle about, and there's some, some real value in that, contemplating the depth of God, but the things that actually transform our lives are dirt simple. They're not hard to find in here. Okay. And they occur over and over with great repetition and much emphasis. So when he says, understand what the will of the Lord is, <laughs> he's not saying that, he's not saying, go root around until you can find it. He's saying, buy into it, understand it, contemplate it, 
have it in your heart. And that's why in Colossians 3, which is an amazingly similar passage, he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now, you can't understand the word if you don't ever interact with the word. If you don't know the word. And i got to tell you, I get a little bit weary of hearing Christians say that that if you hold believers to a high standard of the knowledge of the Word, that you're going to run some of them off. I've had, I've had well-meaning Christians, in fact, Christians who know the Word really well, say to me, we're chasing our young people out of the church because, because the seminary guys get up and stand at the mic. You know what should happen? I've said this before. What should happen in the heart of a young man and a young woman when they hear somebody whose life has been invested in the Word of God stand up here and expound the Word and talk about the Word? They should burn in their heart to know God the way that man knows God. That's exactly what happened to me when I was about 20 years old. And I've shared this story before, so I won't share it again. But the first time I heard the faithful exposition of the Word of God my heart burned to know God the way that man knew God. And that meant I had to know His Word. And if that's a hard target, if that's a high standard, so be it. There's a reason this is called Community Bible Chapel. Now, uh, I want to point out another thing. That, that verse in Colossians 3, and this is important too, the Colossians 3.16 says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you. And then, then where does it go? It, it goes to the same place this passage is going to go. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness to your, in your hearts to God. And here's the, here's the cool thing. When it says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, uh, it means within y'all. Just like throughout Ephesians. The U's are almost all plural. Ron Manus sent out a, he sent, sent out an article this week about the a seminary guy, a guy at DTS who's written a plug-in for certain online Bible apps so that every time it sees the word you and it knows that the original word was plural, it translates it in Texan. And it says y'all. See, we have this great advantage in Texas, guys. We have a second person plural. Right? The rest of the country doesn't, well, in Chicago it's used guys. Right? Y'all is easy. And that's, that's actually critically important. And that is what we, one of the things we, we just have to see in this passage is that the hiding of the Word of God in our hearts is a corporate endeavor. We don't just do it for personal holiness. We don't just do it so we can walk around as independent owners of the Word of God. We hide the Word of God in our hearts so that we may admonish and teach and lift up one another and build up the body of Christ so the body of Christ is powerful in this world. You with me? The corporate nature of these commands is foundational to understanding what God is is telling us. It's foundational. It doesn't mean that it's not individual. It means it never, ever stops it being individual. God fills up His 
people, His saints, in order to fill up His church so that through His church He may fill the world with the knowledge of the living God. And so we are very much in this together. All right, next thing, and this is, this is where all of the remaining verses flow from it. it this thing kind of cascades from one big point to another. Wise living is spirit-filled living, but it's not just you. Wise living fills the church with the Spirit. Paul says, uh, do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And who is he talking to? He's talking to y'all. Y'all be filled with the Spirit. Now, uh, I was just talking to Bob a minute ago about the be not drunk with wine. If you look at the other passages that we were just talking about, the redeeming the time passages, the list's a little longer. There's some other sins that are mentioned, and there's some that are mentioned, big ones that are mentioned earlier in, in chapters 4 and 5. Why does Paul single out be not drunk with wine? Well, I'm going to suggest a couple of reasons. These are not inspired. One is, what happens when you get drunk? Well, you give over control to something else. Okay? And if you've never been around somebody who is well and duly drunk, if you have been around them, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And being filled with the Spirit is about giving over control to someone else, to the Spirit, so that your, your thoughts and your words and your actions now, they don't really proceed from you, they proceed from Him. And then when you apply that in the corporate realm, when you say that this is about the, the church being filled with the Spirit, it means that, the, that we together, that our thoughts, our words, our actions, our songs, they, they pass along to each other His words and His will and His way, not ours. And that's, uh, that's a marvelous assignment and dynamic. Now there are two false notions that are very, very popular when it comes to this idea of the filling of the Spirit. Some of you kind of know where I'm going to go with this. One is the one I just talked about, and that is that it's individual. There are whole denominations that have been created around the idea that that the filling of the Spirit is something that happens, it, it happens inside the person and Sort of the best way that 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 manifests itself in the life of the body is that we all come together and step on each other's toes trying to give expression to the Spirit in us. It's it's amazing that in 1 Corinthians 14, we're actually told that just because the Spirit has led you to do something doesn't mean you are supposed to say it in in the gathering of the body because the gathering of the body is for the edification of the body. It's not for the edification of you. Look it up. Okay? I can't tell you how many times I've had people say that the schedule in the worship time, the timing of the worship time, the process of the worship time is so governed by the Holy Spirit that we just have to sit back and watch what happens with no constraints and no order in effect. That's what they're saying. And Paul argues exactly against that. He said that's not the way it works. It is to be orderly because God is not the God of confusion. 
And the whole argument, the whole point in 1 Corinthians 14 is that the work of the Spirit in the gathering of the body is for the building up of the body, not of you. All right. So the first false notion is that it's all individual, the filling of the Spirit. The second is that it is about an ecstatic experience that somehow transcends the mundane world of plain old propositional revelation. Guys, this is not plain old propositional revelation. This is the living and active word of the living God. And there's nothing like it in the world. Prophets and apostles died so we could have this revelation that God has given to us of Himself. And there is no knowledge of God apart from His revelation of Himself in His written Word. Sam Keller rightly said, you can know the Bible without knowing God, but you cannot know God without knowing the Bible. The filling of the Spirit is about the rest of the things right here in this passage. And what's beautiful is they're all corporate. Let's look. Why is the living fills the church with the Spirit? And here's how I know it's the church that's getting filled because it's all about the church. First, verse 19a. Oh, let me, let me explain something structural. After the command, the last imperative in this passage is be filled with the Spirit. The rest of the passage is a series of five Greek participles. And I know you don't care about the Greek, but the reason that that's significant is it tells us it tells us what's going on. Those five Greek participles are subordinate to that imperative. And that means they're telling us how to be filled with the Spirit. They're telling us what, what being filled with the Spirit actually means and looks like. You with me? And here's, here are those five imperatives. Speaking. Singing. Making melody. Giving thanks. Being subject. A lot of translations kind of switch things up in verse 21 so it looks like a new thought. It's not a new thought. My brother Paul Johannan straightened me out on that on, on Wednesday. Speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks, being subject. Let's take those one at a time. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How often do you guys think, when you think about worship, the, the music of worship, how often do you think of our singing as speaking to each other? I've heard well-meaning Christians say that, that there should be no such thing as a Christian hymn that's not directly addressing God. But Martin Lloyd-Jones points out in his sermon on this passage that nearly half of the Psalms are not addressed directly to God. He, he said, he, of course, some of them are addressed, addressed to places like Mount Zion, just a few. Some, in some, the psalmist is addressing himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, Psalm 103. But most of that other half that's not direct, directly addressing God, you know who it's addressing? The people of God. About God. It's psalms that talk to the people of God about God. So that we may, that we may rejoice in Him. We may have our eyes turned to Him. We may worship Him together and adore Him together based on the same realities about God that He has made known. So we're reminding each other. Even when we sing, we're reminding each other about the one we worship. Isn't that great? Now, 
turn again over to Colossians 3.16 because it makes, it makes this very clear. Verse 16, Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within y'all with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. I hope that sort of changes the way you think about singing together. And guys, if you're just barely able to muster a voice on Sunday morning, you might push it a little. Right? We got a high roof and it's hard to fill this room with with our voices, but it's possible. It's possible. We, You know, let's sing joyfully. Let's sing with our hearts unto the Lord. And let's, guys, let's sing to the Lord together with each other in such a way that we are building each other up in the worship of God. It's a great assignment. All right, I've got to push it here on time. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Next, Singing and making melody with your hearts, with your heart to the Lord. <laughs> I almost blew that with my plural singular thing there. Listen, this is cool. Singing and making melody with y'all's heart. Do you know how many times in Paul's epistle that combination occurs? I haven't counted them yet, but it's a bunch. Y'all's one heart. He could have said y'all's hearts. That's not what he said. Singing and making melody to the Lord with y'all's heart. And and think about this for a minute. What else do we do when we come together as the saints where we are are singing the same words together in the same rhythm at the same time to the same music in such a way that we're bringing together a multitude of different voices and different notes into this beautiful, harmonized, orchestrated unity. And where did the worthy walks, where did Paul start when he began to talk about walking in a manner worthy of your calling in chapter 4? He started with unity. He, He talked about being diligent, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Spirit, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's a lot of ones. We also get to sing together. Now the other thing to note in that in that verse, singing and making melody with y'all's one heart to God is, is God does, the words are critically important. We're speaking to each other and we're speaking to God, but He actually likes the music too. You ever think about that? God likes music. Making melody in your heart to the Lord with your one heart. It doesn't mean that all of us have to be uh, musically inclined, but what it does mean, beloved, is that God loves it when we worship Him in song. And He always has. The, The Old Testament's full of full of the worship of God in song. All right. And this is a really big one. 
Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. That's a mouthful. If you're always giving thanks to God for all things, not just in all things, but for all things, how many things do you get to complain about? Beloved, complaining is sin. Let me say that again unless you missed it. Complaining is sin. And and one more thing. Complaining is sin. What would happen, I've asked this question before, but this is something we ought to ponder. What would happen to our conversations with each other if the complaining was completely absent? And in, and in its place, don't just empty the house, in its place, we were pointing each other toward all the ridiculous wealth of reasons that we have to rejoice in the Lord. If, you're, if you don't know what those reasons are, go back and read the first three chapters of this book. You have been outrageously blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You are wealthier than the wealthiest unbeliever who has ever inhabited this earth by millions of times. And your wealth lasts forever. So, how much complaining is legit? If you're giving thanks to God for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, complaining is, it just doesn't, it's not fitting for saints, beloved. All the lamentation about all the myriad of things, whether it's, whether it's the state of affairs in the world, whether it is the infirmity that you have been experiencing, whether it's a bad relationship in your life, all the complaining is sin. And what should replace it is rejoicing in the Lord and giving credit to Him for the fact that He works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So how many things does God not use to bless, in the final analysis, to bless those whom He has loved into His kingdom? None of them. He uses them all. And another thing here is this is another, it's a y'all command. And that means he's not in this passage talking about our prayer closets. We should absolutely lift up our praise to God when we pray to him personally, individually. But this passage is about praying. It's about thanking God out loud. It's about thanking God in the hearing of his people. There was a whole category of offering in the Old Testament where you would pray to God and you would say, God, if, if you'll bless my crops this year, I, I promise you I will not just carry that around with me. I will go and I will stand in the congregation of your people and I will lift up my praise to you and I will present an offering that acknowledges you as the source. That wasn't the Israelites manipulating God. That was God manipulating the Israelites. That was God showing them through the vote of offerings what it meant to actually be dependent and to offer up genuine praise. That's what we're supposed to do together. Always giving thanks in all things, for all things, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. When we start treating our tribulations as opportunities and speaking to one another and singing to one another knowing that they are, God, uh, people, things change. Why, why would we do that? Because Romans 5, 3, 4, 5. We exult in tribulation because tribulation produces 
Perseverance. And perseverance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint because God has poured out His love upon us in the Holy Spirit. And so the tribulation just, it's just an opportunity. It's an instrument in the hands of God that just moves us closer and closer to Him. The things in your life that disillusion you toward the world are good things, not bad things. The things in your life that disappoint you about other people are good things. You know why? Because other people are not the source of your well-being. They never will be. God is. Those who do premarital counseling and, and intervention with folks that are really hurting, that's, that's bedrock. All right. We are to speak truth to one another in love. That's really what this is about. Same thing he talked about in chapter four. In every, through every medium, song, speech, whatever, written words, we are to speak truth to one another in love. We are to build each other up in the knowledge of God. We are to build each other up in the joy of the Lord. We do that together. And that, beloved, is how the body of Christ gets filled with the Spirit. That's the filling of the Spirit that this is talking about. It's not just individual, and it's not mystical, and it's not, not weird, and it's not ecstatic. It's about the revelation that God has given us of Himself pervading our lives with each other, filling our lives with each other. Okay? That's how the body of Christ gets filled with the Spirit. The last, the last participle is being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And we're not going to spend time on that today because that's what the, all the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6 through verse 9 is all about how that plays out. But I will say that that's, again, it is a critical part of how the body of Christ gets filled up with the Spirit is that we we subordinate our will, our interests, even the, what appears to be our well-being in order to pursue those things for the other person, to not their will, but to pursue their well-being in their relationship with God. And above all, guys, to pursue the building up of the body of Christ in our union with Christ. Uh, I'm out of time. The last thing I want to say, though, is that walking wisely means walking in love. The overarching command in chapter 5 is be imitators of Christ as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as he loved y'all and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God is a soothing Roman to, to God, right? If you look at Romans, all those passages... I won't have time to show you, but go back and look at Romans 13. Go back and look at 1 Corinthians 4. Go back and look at Colossians 3. All the passages that we reference today, they all, within just a couple of verses, sometimes one verse of what I read, they all say, above all, love each other. Love each other. That's, that's the, the heart of the body of Christ filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful commission you've given to us. And it's all founded and grounded on our calling. Everything 
that you've told us in those first three chapters about whose we are and what we have been given in Christ. We're so outrageously wealthy in him. Father, relentlessly, we ask you relentlessly not to let us live as paupers when we are children of the King of Kings. And teach us, Father, to live our lives together day by day in such a way that we build up the household of the living God on this earth, that we may be powerful for you, that we may go out into this world and shine the light of Jesus Christ in the darkness. Father, we pray that you will wake us up, that you will raise us up from the dead, and you will shine on us that we may, that we may shine into the world. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.